you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, please. If you don't have one with you, there should be one in the row of chairs ahead of you, or to your left, or to your right, somewhere around there. I encourage you to open up the Bible and to look at these words as we consider them this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. We're going to read verses 25 through 35. Give me a second to get there. Our Advent series is titled, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. We're looking at different testimonies at Christmas time. Today we're looking at a fellow named Simeon and what he has to tell us about Christ, particularly at Christmas. So if you'll read along with me in verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the customs of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. His father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointing, appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. The sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So would you bow your heads and pray with me as we seek the Lord's help in understanding his word today? Father, there is so much joy around the birth of Christ. And if we could just have a fraction of this joy that Simeon experienced in this moment, many of us might think that as we're reading this passage. want to see Christ this morning. We know that he has given his people joy that the world cannot take away. A joy that is a peculiar joy that supersedes the trials, frustrations of this life. All rooted in seeing Christ. Lord, as we look at your word this morning with physical eyes, may we, with the eyes of our hearts, see your salvation. Perhaps for the first time, perhaps afresh, but in such a way that we might be prompted to heartfelt testimony, sincere worship. We thank you, Lord, that we bring nothing to the table even in this moment. Simply open ears. Spirit, would you come? Would you teach? Correct, reprove? Train us for righteousness. Make us more like Christ. And maybe he, may he be exalted in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to give you a little bit of direction this morning for how we're going to look at this passage. We're basically going to look at four things that Simeon tells us about seeing Christ. I'm going to give you those 
in the, at the front here so that you can kind of tell where we're going. First of all, we're going to see that in seeing Christ, we need to embrace unity. Secondly, that we need to see Christ and be aware of divisions. That we need to see Christ and be comforted. And then lastly, that we should see Christ and testify from the heart. This is one way, perhaps at least, uh, hopefully a helpful way of looking at the testimony of Simeon. This wonderful mystery, this wondrous mystery that Simeon saw in this moment in the temple. On what perhaps he might have thought of was just going to be another ordinary day of worship. He saw Christ. This first thing that we ought to see in seeing Christ is embracing unity. And you can see this in the mission that Simeon presents to uh, the parents here, to Joseph and Mary, that this is what Christ is going to do. He is appointed for the rising and fall of many. He says later on before that, he says that this child is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to the people of Israel. Light and glory, creating unity that, that around this person, people from all tribes, tongues, and nations are going to gather and find common ground. This is what the church is, right? It's tough because we still talk about church in ways of saying we're going to go to church or we're going to do church or we're going to see the church. But being the church is the foundational understanding of our response to Christ, of, of, our, of our next step. Since we are in Christ, we are in Christ together. We are meant to embrace unity and so the church is, simply put, a joining together of people who have seen salvation in Christ. And that's not necessarily a visible seeing. This is what Simeon got to do, right? Simeon got to see Christ with his own eyes. There were many people who got to see Christ with their own eyes. They didn't all necessarily believe, did they? We know that from our study in John that we're going through. Plenty of people who saw Christ but did not necessarily see salvation. So clearly, this seeing Christ that Simeon is talking about here, seeing salvation, he's seeing not with physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes. And that is what the church is unified on, that seeing of Christ. And so this is not meant to be a call for us to all have our own spiritual visions of Christ, to see him physically. While some have seen Christ and most of us have not, we can know for sure that there is no disadvantage at having not seen him physically. It is not only for the spiritually elite. It is not that Simeon was so special, although we do see that he was a righteous and devout man. We see that he was a man who trusted God and who was waiting for what? Did you see it in the passage? He was a man in Jerusalem, righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the Messiah. He knew that the Messiah was the answer to everything, not only for his own life, but for everyone around him as well. And so in verses 25 and 26, we get our little bio of Simeon and what he's about. And, and Luke describes him as a righteous and devout man before God. And, and these two words would kind of immediately draw people's minds to the idea of the Ten Commandments, right? That we have commandments before God and commandments in the midst of each other. And this was a man who observed those things. He was righteous in the midst of people and devout before God. Seems to mean that people knew this kind of thing about him. This was indeed his testimony that preceded him. 
He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. We often depict Simeon as an old man, particularly from his words here in verse 29. Now you are letting your servant depart in peace. What is he talking about here? Is he talking about leaving the temple? He's talking about leaving the world. He's talking about death. I can leave in peace now because I've seen your salvation. It doesn't necessarily mean that he was an older man, but it's possible. But it's this word consolation that's so fascinating that Luke mentions here. The consolation of Israel. Now, it's interesting if you think of consolation and how we use consolation today. It's most often going to stir up in our minds images of prizes that you might win at the fair when you didn't quite win the game, right? A consolation prize. A second place trophy, for instance. Oh, you were so close and we ought to give you something here. We ought to give you at least the second best thing of whatever that might be. Christ is no consolation prize in that regard. Here, this word consolation is talking about comfort and refreshment, renewal, the hope of God's people. Not to get second best, but rather to get the best of what God has to offer. And that is the wondrous mystery of Christmas, isn't it? That God has not simply given us, hey, let me see if I can find something for you here that that might help you with whatever problem you're facing. He's saying, I'm going to give you my son, the perfect, righteous, only perfect and righteous one. That is the gift of God. That is the consolation of Israel. Simeon did not see this consolation as the answer to Roman oppression, though that was a problem for Israel at the time, of course, for Judea. He didn't see it as uh, the answer to this guy Herod that we talked about last week and how terrible he was. Boy, if we could just get another king, wouldn't that be nice? The Christ is a king. But as we know from the story later on, he does not go and just say, hey, Herod, you're out and I'm in. He has a bigger plan than that. No, Simeon doesn't hope for just a temporary consolation for the political structure of the world or or the, the financial issues of his life. He's looking for the overall consolation of the problem of sin and death in the world. And that is what he calls us to be unified in. My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. It is necessary for us to embrace unity in the body of Christ and embrace a unity that that throws away all other distinctions and says that if we're in Christ, then that is the most important and the most defining thing about us. And that's a pretty important message for us today, isn't it? In the world that we live in. Because today we, we choose certain things to define ourselves most definitively by. If I were to meet you for the first time and say, what's the most special thing about you? You might say, well, I'm a parent, or I'm a brother, or I'm a worker of some business, or I'm a Republican, or I'm a Democrat, or whatever that might be. We would want to answer that question at the deepest level of our hearts to say, this is the most defining thing about me. If it's not Christ, then just as God will not give us just a consolation prize, a secondary Comforts, even though we couldn't get the best thing, the thing we really needed. So God will not tolerate in our own hearts for Christ to be second, third, or fourth place. That's not to say that the first thing you should answer when somebody says, what's the most special thing about you? That you must say Christ or else you're not a good Christian. But if at the place of your heart, if there's anything else there, anything else taking that first place, we've missed it. 
So what is it that you are waiting for? What is it that you want consolation from? What are the people around you seeking consolation from? What, what, what troubles of the world are people, people looking at and saying, if we could just fix COVID or the political thing or something in our town or get them to play Christmas music later, whatever that thing might be, we need to recognize that whatever we could seek to amend those things are going to do so in an imperfect way. Christmas is a time that we look for consolation, right? We, we hopefully look forward to many things at Christmas time of family gatherings and, and Christmas lights and, and good food and presents and all these wonderful things. None of them are going to give us the consolation that we need. They're only a shadow. They can't function in an ultimate way. They can only function to point us to something else. And that's what's so great about Christmas. Because it's easy for us to recognize, wow, the world is celebrating Christmas around us. And they don't even know Christ. And so this has become so secular and we should just forget about it entirely. Well, I have to ask you, Christian, what if, what if God did that with you? What if he looked at you and said, oh, well, you're just all just like the world. I'm just going to forget about you entirely. I'm not saying that you need to deck the halls like crazy in your house saying at the place of your heart could you see the opportunity that as you drive by the neighbor who you know doesn't know Jesus but still puts Christmas lights up could you embrace the reality that that's an opportunity to bring them into into the life of the church into the life of Christ to, to have a conversation about why why did you pick those decorations you know, from that question, you could end up asking that person, and what do you think about Jesus? And just a few steps in the middle there. You're going to have to figure it out because I can't, you know, we, I can't tell you the exact formula of every conversation. But what, what is it you like about these Christmas lights? Is there something special about the nutcracker you put on your fireplace every year? Those kinds of questions and, and, and those probing questions that say, hey, I want to know more about you can lead into opportunities to testify. And clearly I've moved to the last point of the sermon too quickly. Hold on to that one, will you? Let's get back to Simeon. Because Simeon was a special guy, not only because he was righteous and devout, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, but he also, it says that the Holy Spirit was upon him. This is not a usual, normal thing, particularly before Pentecost. In the book of Acts, we see that the promise of the Holy Spirit that Christ made comes to all believers. The Holy Spirit indwells believers at the moment of salvation. He renews the life of the believer. He applies the work of Christ to their, that person's heart. What we're talking about here with Simeon is not exactly the same thing, and it was something that was very rare, especially towards the end of the Old Testament time. Not a lot of prophecies going on. We have that 400-year intertestamental period. So the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon, and he was the one who revealed all of this to Simeon. And he still is the one revealing it to us as well. When you read these words about the Christ and something in your heart says, yeah, I really do believe this. The reason that happens is because of the Holy Spirit. Nobody wises up into the kingdom of God. We don't say, you know what, I finally figured out this whole Bible. I figured out the whole Jesus thing. The Holy Spirit does that. Because the Bible says that we are spiritually dead apart from his work. We need that renewal of the Spirit. And that's what Simeon is talking about here, the salvation. And it's the spirit that's leading him in that way. So let's get to his song. In verse 27, we see the beginning. <clears throat> I'm sorry, 29. 
Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Simeon was content. This is what his life had amounted to. This is what he was waiting for. The Holy Spirit, in some way before this, revealed, hey, Simeon, I've got really cool news for you. Before you die, you're going to see the Messiah. Wow. How would you like that to wake up to one day, have an appointment with the Holy Spirit who says, really good news here for you. This is what Simeon had. It seems that there was some length of time between that moment and this moment, doesn't there? I don't think it was, hey, hey, I got some plans for you today. It's Tuesday, uh, end of the day, I want you to go to the temple. You're going to find a little baby. It's the Messiah. Now, we love seeing babies, don't we? There's some babies in the congregation right now. You take a look at them, and immediately, you can't help but smile. Unless they're your kid, maybe it's a little bit easier to not if that's the case. But there's sometimes that it's not a smile on my face for my own. But there is something about babies that make us smile. There's something about joy of, of that potential, that new life, right? We love to see babies. We love to hold babies. I know not everybody loves to hold babies. But there's something amazing about that new life. And what Simeon has in this moment is not just a, oh, look at that. Did you guys see that baby coming out of the temple with Mary and Joseph? How cute. More than that. That was involved in that because Jesus was fully human, right? So he was a baby. And they, everybody would have looked and said, oh, look, a baby. But Simeon was the one who came to Mary and Joseph. And funny thing, don't really know if Simeon actually knew Mary and Joseph here. But he comes to Mary and Joseph. He takes the baby up in his arms. This is where I'm kind of like, oh, I hope they knew who Simeon was. Or maybe it was just obvious that this was somebody sent by the Lord. But he takes this baby up in his arms and he doesn't just simply say, what a cute baby. Look at his dimples. Did you see his nose? He looks just like his dad. Well, that's not really his dad, so I don't know why you think that. But he didn't do that. He holds up the baby and he says, Lord, and he talks to God immediately. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. This is what I've been waiting for. And so he can say, similar to what Paul says in Philippians, for me to live is Christ. I've just been waiting to see him. And once I've seen him, to die is gain. I can depart in peace. There's nothing that I'm missing at this point. I've seen the salvation of God. That's it. Bucket list over. One thing. See the salvation of God. So it is for all who have seen his salvation that we have a peculiar contentedness in our hearts. Sure, there are times where we say, boy, Lord, I'd really like to get this career thing changed, or I'd really like to see my kids grow up. I'd really like to uh, you know, see what happens in the next 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. But at the root of the hearts of the believers that belong to God, that have seen his salvation, we can all say, when it's time, it's time. I can depart in peace. He describes this salvation as a light for the Gentiles, the true glory of Israel, the true purpose of Israel, all throughout the Old Testament, all the things that happen, the kings, the judges, uh, the, the exiles, all that you see in the Old Testament is all pointing to this one child. The glory of Israel is not in any of their own attempts to produce glory. Particularly at this point in Luke chapter 2, Israel does not have any glory. They're under Roman rule. They don't even have a real king, as we talked about the last two weeks with Herod. The glory of Israel is to be found in the fact that from them came the Christ, as Paul says in Romans 9. This is the thing, this Christ was the one who was meant to unify all of God's people together. 
the one around whom all of Israel that had been scattered would come back and say, the Messiah is here, and this is the thing worth unifying over. Simeon seems to be in a small group of those who have received that truth. That doesn't he? Simeon, who says that this salvation is for all the people, for all peoples, rather, that he was a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to the people Israel, to unify even Israel and the Gentiles that were separated, particularly on the Israel's part. You know, it's funny, we talk about, at least in Northeast Ohio, we talked about the rivalry between the Browns and the Steelers. Um, Browns fans just really don't get along with Steelers fans generally over there. And it's so funny because one day I realized that Steelers fans don't really care so much about that whole rivalry because the Browns never win. <laughs> or at least they don't usually win. And, and Israel is kind of like the Browns fans that are just like, boy, the Gentiles, they're all dogs. We want nothing to do with them. And the Gentiles are like, all right, whatever, Israel. We're just doing our own thing anyway. Totally missing why Israel's getting all wound up about it. And Israel's missing it as well. They're embracing not the unity that Christ is supposed to bring, but the division that happens by necessity as well. So as we see Christ and embrace unity, we also have to see Christ and be aware of division. Because Christ is the one who is appointed for the rising and the falling of many in Israel. This is in the second part of Simeon's prophecy in verses 33 through 34. Christ was appointed for this. It's kind of a cool thing, this word appointed in the Greek. Is this, it, it's the same word, although it's being used differently than um, earlier in chapter 2 when we talk about, when Luke talks about Jesus being laid down in a manger. It's the same word as appointed. It's kind of cool, cool connection that, you know, as, as Christ is laid in a manger, God is appointing him for something greater than just simply, oh, well, hey, I've given you a baby. You've got to take care of it. No, there's, there's something bigger than that, and that's what Simeon's talking about. From the manger to the cross, many will rise at the moment of the manger. Christmas is a wonderful message from God, isn't it? I've given you my son, my only son, the son whom I love. It's easy for many to rise at the moment of Christmas, but the cross that is to come later will cause so many to fall. That may even be perhaps why Christmas gets so much more attention than Good Friday, doesn't it? The cross is offensive. The cross is not something that people want to talk about. It's still up here every Sunday because that's our main message. That's why the Christmas tree didn't take over the spot of the cross. It's pushed over to the side so every once in a while you can look at it and go, that's pretty. There's ornaments on it this week. That's really nice. Christmas is wonderful. Jesus came at Christmas time. He was a baby. He was a gift to the world. There were angels that sang and shepherds that came and magi and Simeon and all these wonderful things, but this is leading up to the cross. The execution of God's son who came as a baby. Simeon says that Christ is appointed for this. It doesn't just happen to him. The offense of the cross and the offense that Christ has in the world around us is not a passive activity of God. It's his intention as well. It's a mysterious thing. I don't want to get too far into the matter of God electing some and not electing others, but we see that in Scripture, and it's a fun conversation for after church. But we see right here that God intentionally has appointed Christ for the rising and falling. 
And that's not to say that Christ comes and says, hey, I just want none of you to believe in me. But that the words that Christ, say, Christ says is going to reveal the thoughts and intentions of every heart, which is the next part of Simeon's prophecy. They reveal what is inside of the heart, what has been put there or all that's left. What has been put there would be those who rise. It's been faith that's been put in their hearts so that when they hear Christ, when they see his salvation, rather, they respond by faith. But there will be some who say, I don't get it. Christmas was great. Don't think I need to go to church on a Friday. Maybe I'll go on Easter. There's always pretty flowers. It's a good message. Something hopeful. I'd like to conquer death someday. But I don't want to talk about the death part. See Christ and be aware of the division that he brings. Again, that is not his primary mission, but it is a natural and a necessary effect of the message on those who will not come to faith in Christ, at least for a time. At the cross, many will fall. Many will look at it and say, no, I, I don't want anything to do with this. And that's what Simeon says, that, that Christ is appointed for a sign that is opposed does anyone oppose Christ at Christmas time? Sure. I mean, boy, have we gotten worked up about the city taking down? I don't know if it's happened here. I haven't seen it yet. But back home, you know, the city saying, you know what, we're done with the nativity scene. It's just so offensive. And what happens? They, they might take it down, but you get obviously Christians who say, hey, I don't think it's so offensive. You can get non-Christians in a lot of cases and say, I don't see anything offensive either. It's, it's a baby. I like babies. This is a fine message. The sign that is opposed doesn't come at Christmas time necessarily, though for many it might. But this sign that is opposed is the cross, is the true mission of Christ. It's the part two, it's the sequel. This is just all the setup so that we might know the value of this one who is going to go to the cross. And beyond that, this one who goes to the cross calls us as well to take up our own crosses in Luke 14. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That line will cause many to fall. That will be a sign that is opposed. I don't want to take up a cross. I don't want to lay my life down. And, and of course, Jesus laid his life down physically, and so many believers have done the exact same, laid down their very lives for the sake of the message of the gospel. But all Christians are called to lay down their own rights to their life, to lay down their own preferences, lay down their own plans, to take up a cross and follow Christ. Christ did not come to please himself, but he came to do the will of the one who sent him. That's the message of the cross. It wasn't, man, I came here at Christmas time and everything was looking great, everybody liked me, but then I started talking and I didn't know it, but then they crucified me. It didn't surprise him at all. It was the plan. And so at the heart of Christ's call to us to bear our own cross, we'll find division. And we'll not just find division in those who say, hey, I don't really think that's what he meant. I'm going to go over here, and I really do think that's what he meant, or I think he meant something else. But in our own hearts, what we will find, and hopefully what you're finding even right now, as you hear that call of taking up your cross, that there is division in your own life. I know there is, because none of y'all are perfect. We're still waiting for that part. But there's division in our hearts because we have that new life in us. Those who believe in Christ, we say, boy, I do. I want to take up my cross. I want to follow Christ with everything I have. Of course he's worthy of that. But over here, man, I'd really like 
to just take care of this one thing first. Christ wants to unify all of his people around himself, and yet even at the place of our own hearts, we find this warning of division. Many of us will fall, that we will fall daily in our attempts to take up our cross and follow Christ. And when we see Christ, our hearts are revealed. That is, he says that the thoughts of many hearts are revealed. That is the inward reasoning. Our own understanding of Christ is revealed when we see him, when we're face-to-face with him. Today, you're face-to-face with, face-to-face with Christ's word right now. And at the place of your heart, your thoughts are being revealed, I trust. How we think about Christ, how we think about Christ is revealed in our response to the gospel. And not just that one time when you walked up to the front of the church and said a prayer, or when you got baptized, or when you had that moment where you stopped your car and pulled over to the side of the road and prayed, but in every single day, you have to respond to the gospel again today. The gospel calls us to endure in following Christ, not just to follow him for a time. And these thoughts that are brought up in our inward reasoning that are revealed because of the word of Christ are things that often we'll want to conceal and hide. That you will not, be, you will not feel excited after church to say, you know what I want to do? I want to just tell everybody my deepest, darkest secrets. Whoever's sitting next to me at church, get ready. If you feel that way, there's something wrong with you. And it's not the work of God, I would say. Hebrews 4.13 says that there is no creature that is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, the humility and repentance that Christ calls us to is not one that says, you know what, interrupt the sermon, come up here, and let's just lay it all out on the table and tell everybody how messed up we are. But it is one that says we have to give an account to the one who sees all things. Now, there are times that we need to confess, right? There are times that when we have sinned publicly that we need to confess publicly, but when we sin privately, we need to confess privately. In that unity that Christ calls us to, he he calls us into friendships with brothers and sisters, you know, particularly as we deal with trials and struggles to find that brother who I can say, man, I'm really having a hard time with this. I hate to reveal the thoughts and intentions of my heart right now, but I know God can see them and I need to deal with them and I need you to pray for me. Our hearts right now may be revealing a momentary failing or a more serious falling. It could be the matter of just my usefulness to Christ right now or it could be a deeper matter of my eternity of where am I going to spend all of the rest of my days and beyond. And is there anything that God does not already know about? that we would say, I don't want to face what he has for me, so I'm going to keep it to myself. There's no creature hidden from his sight. We have to give an account for everything. And the way we do that is to see Christ, to be aware of this matter of division, of the rising and falling, to see that people are being unified in Christ, and to come to him and say, all right, Lord, I have no reason to hide anything, and there's no sense in trying Christ was appointed to this sign that was opposed so that we might not deal with that division always, that division of our own hearts, but that we might be given a new heart, that we might be refreshed in moments of worship to be reminded that, yes, I can confess my sins with confidence to the Lord because he has given me his son. 
because it was that baby at Christmas time that was offered as that perfect and wonderful gift that Simeon held up and said, this is the salvation of God. A very John the Baptist moment, isn't it? John the Baptist in the river when Jesus comes to be baptized and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Simeon's saying basically the same thing in so many words. But Christ was appointed to this very thing, to become the Lamb of God for us, to be the sign that was spoken against. And again, he was appointed to that. Can you imagine moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, aunts, uncles? Can you imagine appointing your son, daughter, nephew, niece, grandchild to such a task? And yet God the Father appointed Christ to the cross. You might remember from a few months ago when we were studying John chapter 2, that as Jesus went into the temple and cleared it out and said, you're making this a den of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. The Jews said to him in verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. See, the sign that is opposed is this sign of him giving his life. And it's opposed because on the one hand, people will look at that sign and say, I'm offended that you think I'm that bad, that someone would be crucified for me. On the other hand, someone might look at it and say, I just can't come to terms with the fact that there's nothing I can do to make myself better. In either of those cases, the falling is evident. But the ones who rise are those who say, yes, if, if Christ had to go to such lengths to make me his, I want to receive that. He brings peace as he brought to Simeon. He raises up all who truly see and know him for who he is. But first, so that we might rise, he had to take the fall. And in taking the fall, we find that same contentment that Simeon found. Now you're letting your servant depart in peace. Because Christ died and rose again, I can face whatever life has to throw to me. And I can move on to the next thing, knowing that my true hope is in his return. He is the consolation of Israel. He is worth waiting for, for my comfort, for my refreshment, for my salvation. This is the gift of God at Christmas. It's greater than whatever you've been planning for that important person in your life, trying to find that perfect gift. God knew from before the foundation of the world exactly what he would give to his people, and it would be his son. And that is worthy of celebration. It's worthy of feasts. It's worthy of putting lights on your house or whatever it is that you want to do. And even all throughout the year, obviously, this is not just a thing we get excited about for 30 days, right? This is something that is meant to envelop our whole life. He's worthy of year-round unity. He's worthy of year-round humility. He's worthy of year-round worship. Christ is the only one who can bring consolation, comfort, and relief. And I know that you need that. Because I do. Every person does. See Christ and be comforted. He's the unifying person for all of history. And he is the dividing one. The most defining thing about every person, whether Christian or non, is going to be what they see in Christ. But if we are in him, we have no fear of the revelation of our thoughts of our hearts because he's already paid for it. At the cross, the penalty for our sin, all of our thoughts, all of our, all of our deeds, all of our words that, that were against all that God is, he's taken care of. And Simeon saw that when he said, this is the salvation of God. Listen to John Calvin. He's a theologian from a long, long time ago. And in talking about Simeon, he said, 
if the sight of Christ while he was yet a child had so powerful an effect on Simeon that he approached death with cheerfulness and composure, how much more abundant materials of lasting peace are now given to us who have salvation altogether completed in Christ. Theologians love run-on sentences. That was a lot. But what he's saying is this. If we can look at Simeon, and Simeon can look at Christ and say, I could die now. It's fine. That's all I needed. How much more can we who can pick up the Bible? Yeah, of course, picking up Christ would be far more exciting and far more meaningful in, in many ways of our own our own experience, right? But every day you are granted the opportunity to hear from God's word if you will take it. Calvin says that we have much more abundant materials of lasting peace given to us in Christ. Not just because of this, but because we have the full message. Simeon probably didn't know about the cross. He probably didn't know about the resurrection. He just knew salvation was in Christ. We have the full picture. So, embrace unity as we see Christ. See Christ and be aware of the vision. See Christ and be comforted. And lastly, see Christ and testify from your heart. Because it is that heart that is revealed in Christ, right? And he is appointed for the falling and rising of many. And, and in his sign that he does at the cross, the thoughts of our hearts are revealed. And for those who are his, the thoughts of our hearts ought to be, I need to tell people more. I need to tell more people about this wonderful mystery of God's salvation. In thinking about seeing Christ, my mind this past week often went back to one of my preaching heroes' testimonies, Charles Spurgeon. And I know I shared this last year. Get ready, I'll probably share it every year around winter or Christmas time. But Spurgeon was a young boy. He grew up in a Christian household, and he had heard the gospel many a time. He had studied the Bible more than many of us even at this point of being 13 or 14. He poured over the truth of God, trying to discover how to be saved. And he knew how to be saved, but he didn't see that salvation. And so, one snowstormy Sunday morning, he was unable to get to the church that he would typically go, because apparently the, uh, in the 1800s, you know, the snowplow trucks didn't make it through. And so he wanders into a little Methodist church, sits down, probably thinking, what am I even doing here? This is not my denomination. And then as he finds out that the pastor isn't even there and just some other guy is going to come up from the pews and preach the gospel today, this was the last moment that Spurgeon ever thought he would be converted. And yet the text for that morning, Isaiah 45, 22 through 23, God says to his people, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And this man who was an untrained pastor stood up there, preached from this text, locked eyes with Spurgeon and said, Son, you look miserable. And you will always be miserable unless you obey my text. And in that moment Spurgeon believed in Christ. And his life was changed. He saw salvation because he turned to Christ. His heart was transformed. The thoughts and intentions of his heart were revealed, and he was given a brand new heart and new life in Christ. So if that has happened with us, let us be prepared at any moment to share Christ. Let us look forward to any moment where we can share Christ. Let us be sharing Christ in our work, in our conversation, and wherever we find ourselves. 
as we go about our daily lives. May our lives reflect from our hearts what we know and have seen in Christ. So I'm going to give you three things as a closing here. Since Christ has been revealed, one, we must rise and embrace unity with each other because we've all seen him, and that is the unifying factor that brings those of us who claim Christ as our own together today. One, we must rise and embrace unity with each other. Two, we must rise and trust the Spirit to comfort us in Christ and reveal our hearts for repentance. He doesn't reveal the hearts, the, the thoughts of our hearts so that he can crush us. He reveals the thoughts of our hearts so that he can heal us. I was just reading in Hebrews the other day that God disciplines the son whom he loves. So if we're being disciplined because of sin in our lives, let us repent of it with joy and expectation that God forgives and receives and makes all things right. So one, rise and embrace unity with each other. Two, rise and trust the Spirit to reveal our hearts for repentance and comfort us in Christ. And three, rise and freely, and I want to use the word heartily, testify to all the nations. Everywhere his people will come. You have unique opportunities awaiting you today, tomorrow, the rest of this week, the rest of this month. This light of salvation is to all the world, all the Gentiles. It's the glory of the people of Israel, but Israel is just a flashlight. Christ is the light shining from this great book that we have. So is there a lack of unity with other believers in your life? Is there a need for comfort or peace in, in Christ that maybe you're looking for in other things? Or lastly, does your heart have love enough for the lost? in order to give a free and hearty testimony. Say, this is what Christ has done for me. A testimony cannot just simply be, hey, listen, I'm going to tell you mechanically what the gospel is. A testimony is, this is the gospel that's coming from a heart that's been transformed by it. And, and I know that maybe many of you and many that you will meet, uh, many people that you know, many people who know Christ, will say that it wasn't even, it wasn't just the message, but it was, it was the fact that it came from a messenger that believed that, that changed their hearts. Not that God relies on us for anything, but he is very intentional about using his people to witness to others, isn't he? Not uh, tr Bible tracts are great to leave at restaurants and in parking lots. And those are awesome because God's word never returns void. But there's something special about the fact that you have beheld the wondrous mystery of Christ and are now being commissioned to go out and testify about it. And to do so as Simeon did, saying, all right, Lord, this is all there is. This is, all, this is why you placed me where you placed me, in my job, in my neighborhood, in my family, wherever I am, you've placed me there in order to tell people about Christ. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord, I thank you this morning that you are faithful. I thank you that salvation has been revealed. We have no fear of death if we are in Christ. We can depart in peace. And until that moment, Lord, may we behold the wondrous mystery of Christ. May we see him and be unified with our brothers and sisters. And as one defining thing, we are in Christ. Lord, may we see him and recognize the division that it creates in our hearts and in, in our relationships and our families and our lives, our workplaces all around us. Recognize that there are divisions because there are there are those who, like, the, like us before we knew you, were against you. We were those who fell. 
Lord. We want to see people rise to faith in Christ. So would you help us to have a hearty testimony because we've been comforted by Christ. He is our consolation and our hope. We thank you for all these things. We pray you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.